Okay, Salaamu Alaikum everybody. Happy Persian New Year to anyone who is celebrating. <laughs> Just talking about that here. Um, I hope you guys all had a good week. I'm looking forward to another incredibly beautiful session. This is going to be a heavy-duty surah. Um, I just wanted to share um, a couple of really short, I guess, reflections, um, again, along the lines of um, the convert journey. Um, you know, when, I, when I'm sitting and I'm listening to the, the surahs and um, hearing the, the powerful lessons, um, I'm often reminded about things that I learned along the way because, you know, it's been, um, you know, a long journey, definitely. Um, and it's always interesting to go back and think about how far you've come and how, um, how awkward and uncomfortable you felt at the beginning of this journey and how much this learning helps you to develop as a human being. And most importantly for me um, was learning how to feel comfortable in my own skin. Um, and one of the, the people, you know, I, I was reminded last night of how important um, and how, how powerful role models are in your life um, for visualizing, you know, um, many of these lessons. And one of the most powerful um, impacts and profound impacts I had was um, from the example of the professor's mother, who um, unfortunately left this earth back in 2011. But she, you know, saw me from the very beginning, and her profound, her impact was profound all throughout, um, my, you know, my early days, although I didn't think I fully appreciated it until, um, until she left the planet. And what is the most amazing thing is that her, her impact continued to be profound long after she was gone. And I think, um, she, you know, I, I've actually, you know, honored her and spoken about her in a, one of my previous introductions a couple of years ago, um, because she was just the most beautiful role model for a Muslim woman that, um, you know, anyone could know. And certainly, I was incredibly blessed to have a mother-in-law who was just so beautiful, um, so unlike, you know, like literally the opposite of what people think of as mother-in-laws. I mean, she she was very saintly and very loving and and just so nurturing in so many ways. But more importantly, just an example, a living example of, I mean, I think what we aspire to through a lot of um, the lessons we learn here. And I was reflecting that, you know, this, it's hard, I think, in this day and age to have many role models that you can look up to. And I was supremely blessed to have, um, in particular, three people that I was close to, you know, the, the Sheikh's mother and the Sheikh and the Sheikh's brother. And all of them really just um, exemplify the beauty, the kindness, the empathy, the understanding, um, and the patience that um, I think we are, you know, hearing about and learning about through these these halakas. And so I just wanted to to reflect on a couple of things. I mean, I know that um, one of the most powerful lessons from my mother-in-law was just the idea of dignity. And the thing that she would always say to me is. You know, Anmar, which is my Muslim name, she would say, Anmar, you have to respect yourself. No matter what, you have to respect yourself. And honestly, I don't think I really knew what that meant when she would tell me that early in my days as a convert. But I think over time, I, I learned more what that meant, you know, and, and the power of dignity. Um, because she herself was, like, if you met her, she was a very quiet um, you know, she was just a, a, 
like the definition of silent strength. Like she would just be in a room, you would not, she would never utter a word, but you would just feel the beauty and the peace and um, the divinity that would just emanate from her presence. And so I learned from her the power of silence and the power of sitting quietly with yourself. And I think in the Sura we were talking about um, this past week, the whole idea of being um, comfortable in silence is something that is difficult to achieve when you are not comfortable with yourself. And I like remember, you know, if you were to map out like my brain activity early in my convert days um, versus now, it felt like in any situation there were it was like a ricochet of madness in my head. Like anytime something happened, I would feel I would immediately have to react. I would have to say something. I would have to feel something. I would have to, you know, somehow be, you know, um, on alert. And <clears throat> I couldn't sit quietly. And this oftentimes would also mean that I would have to have like um, a judgment, you know, about something. And I, it, it's, it's sort of like the inability to just take a moment and sit and reflect and be calm and think about, you know, in this particular situation, what is just what has just happened? Let me let me just be patient. Let me think. Let me reflect. And before I react, I was so reactive to things that I would often get myself in trouble. You know, it's like I would feel something and I would act on that emotion. And it took a long time to calm down and be able to just say, no, you know what? It's best to take the time to reflect. And, you know, and have a dignified response. Because I think when you become, you know, when you're so subject to a trigger response, it's, you know, it's based on emotion. It's not based on, you know, um, intellect, reflection, you know, peace. So um, that was very striking for me. And I think it's just a, an indication of where you are in your journey, you know. And I think to tell yourself, you know, to take a moment take your time and just reflect and um, and learn to be comfortable in your own skin. Um, and the other reflection that I wanted to share, which um, is sort of unrelated, but um, just a learning from this, this Pasura where we um, were talking about, um, this actually came up in our reflection group last, last night, the idea of not shaming people who have a conscience, we talked about this in the last surah. Um, I just wanted to make a comment about, about being a parent um, because I know that um, it's a challenge to be a parent to, to kids in general right now, especially with the pandemic and everything like that, but also um, in, in terms of this desire for your kids to do really well and like, you know, getting on... Um, your kid's case about, you know, grades or working harder or, or any of that. And, and one of the things that I've been struggling with is sort of how to parent in the age of the pandemic and, you know, help kids with motivation, you know, and of course, Nito, like a lot of times I'll get on his case because, you know, I feel like he needs to be doing something that he hasn't done. Um, but the lesson that I took away about not shaming kids, I mean, I had, a, I decided on a different strategy instead of coming in going, how come you didn't do this? You need to do that, blah, 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 is actually to, to recognize that, you know, my child has, is trying, has a conscience, 
wants to be respected, wants that dignity to be acknowledged, and to you know take a moment to say, hey, I know you're struggling, and is there anything that I can do? Instead of coming down as an authority, almost like a pharaoh, right, and saying, you know, okay, why aren't you doing this to my expectation? But instead, you know, honoring and respecting and um, acknowledging the dignity of my of my child and saying, you know, what can I do? I know that maybe you need help and it's okay to need help. And I I just remembered like, you know, I was raised with the Pharaoh model and how I, that made me feel. Um, and I see that a lot with how parents handle their children. And when I decided to actively try this new approach, which is sort of like not the helicopter approach, not the Pharaoh approach, I immediately noticed a difference with Mito. Um, like he really felt, I think, comfortable even opening up to me um, and feeling like I was a partner in the process rather than another, um, you know, obstacle or, or thing to be, you know, like avoiding. So um, it was just amazing how quickly that lesson um, took effect, you know, here even in, in our, our life going forward. So just wanted to share that reflection for what it was worth. So anyway, thank you so much, and I'm really looking forward to another session. Oh, and you have an iPad. Please be gentle with me. <laughs> he got a new iPad. I'm just waiting for the, uh, my wife failed me. <laughs> okay. Yes, my wife did fail me. <laughs> and my son came through. <laughs> I have the new iPad, thanks to Sharif, not thanks to Grace. <laughs> Completely thanks to Sharif who, and Rami, because Rami set up the new iPad. And, and I actually have Quran now and little quotes on the side. <laughs> and it is, it is fascinating. It is very bizarre. Like... Uh, like, I can cut all I want from tafsirs and put them in places and draw lines and... Uh, it feels very haram, I have to admit. I mean, it just feels very haram, but... But it, it's fascinating. I mean... Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له له الملك له الحمد وهو على كل شيء قدير اللهم لا مانع إلا ما أعطيت ولا معطي لما منعت ولا ينفع الجد منك الجد يا رب العالمين اللهم صل وسلم وبارك على محمد وعلى آله وأصحابه وطلب إحسانه إلى يوم الدين ومشرح صدري ويسر لي أمري وحرر عقدة من لساني يفقه قولي يا رب So inshallah today we have surah Taha and surah Taha um, is a heavy responsibility And I pray to Allah that I can do it justice. Um, 
because in in the methodology that um, in the methodology that we've developed and we we're focusing on uh, it becomes quite clear that Surah Taha is one of the foundational suar, but it's foundational in in even uh, 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 the way that you understand the very objective of Islam, the very purpose of Islam, the very role of a human being in life. Uh, it was revealed among the early suar but it was clearly revealed after the persecution um, of Muslims have commenced in Mecca. So it was after the period of the open down. And the reports uh, are convincing reports are that it's revealed right after Surah Maryam which inshallah we'll see has its significance. Uh, but after surah that we've talked about, like surah Qaf and Saad and Yasin and Al-Furqan and Fatir, uh, so surah Taha is revealed after all these surah. Um, the likelihood is that it was revealed before surah Al-Dukhan, inshallah, which we will talk about. Um, which has further meaning. I mean, it, it's um, um, so number-wise, it is in the early 40s. It is one of the sort that is, we can say, is um, well. I mean, maybe mid 40s. Sorry, sorry, let me revise that because it's either 44, 45, 46, something like that. In terms of order of revelation, and it is it at a time after the perse persecution of Muslims have commenced, and the Prophet ﷺ was clearly carrying the enormous burden of the message while being personally targeted, personally ridiculed, uh, sometimes physically assaulted, as we have numerous reports of uh, the physical assaults against them around the Kaaba, especially, especially. Uh, but it, it, the, the, the Mecca was no longer playing nice um, or, or even trying to uh, not offend Ali Talib, the, the Prophet's clan. Uh, they were, even mem uh, his own family members, like his uncles, who were in open hostility to the message. And this hardship that the Prophet ﷺ is going through, and this trauma of seeing his followers persecuted, often unable to help them, um, 
unable to do anything to alleviate the those who are being tortured and eventually those who are martyred um, like Ali Yasser uh, who are killed under torture um, weighs down very heavily on him and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala during this period first tells the prophet about some about Maryam which inshallah will deal with which at the first pause puzzles you a bit uh, why why Maryam why is that so important for the Prophet to know at this juncture in his revelation? But second is Surah Taha, and third is Surah Al-Dukhan, which inshallah we'll talk about, literally translates into the, the smoke, um, that has to do with the very nature of reality. And Surah Taha falls right in the middle between Maryam and Al-Dukhan. Muslims often associate Surah Taha with the idea of consolation, consoling a person who is going through severe hardship. And that's fair for Surah Taha to have that reputation. But as we will see, it does something very surprising. It starts out as a message of consolation. But instead of for instance, telling the Prophet that don't worry, you're on the right path, your reward is with Allah, those people who are persecuting you are all going to go to hell and going to be punished. Uh, it, it, it does none of that. It doesn't console him by talking about how evil his persecutors are or the rewards that are awaiting him. It doesn't console him by promising him victory. It doesn't say, you know, be patient, Allah is going to give you victory, and so on. It starts out consoling him, but then switches to two basic narratives that loom in Surah Taha as essential narratives. One is the story of Moses in confronting the Pharaoh. And this is the first time that the Quran spells out the story of Moses in any detail. The, before this, before Surah Taha, there are references to Moses, but they are brief references. 
But Surah Taha is the first time that Surah, the story of Moses is spelled out in any detail. And second is the narrative of creation of Adam and Eve and being tempted by Satan and being placed on earth. And of course, and when Surah Taha says, وَمَا أَنزَلْنَا عَلَيْكَ الْقُرْآنَ لِتَشْقَى We did not give you the Qur'an, we did not send you the Qur'an to cause you misery, that expression, Tashqa, will come back at the end of Surah Taha as if the end of the Surah illuminates the beginning of the Surah, as we will see. So the, the word Tashqa, just keep that in mind will be mentioned at the very beginning of the surah and at the very end of the surah. But the way that it is mentioned at the very end of the surah gives you a remarkable insight on what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala means by the word shaka, misery or hardship. So if you're paying attention, then you would wonder, okay, so the Prophet is going through considerable hardship. His followers are obviously, when you have a leader and a movement and you're being persecuted, you are looking to that leader for explanations as to how to handle the hardship what to do about the hardship. And Surah Taha comes in and says, sort of in, in, a, in a nearly um, apologetic tone, saying, well, you know, we didn't give you the Quran to cause you hardship. But then you think, okay, well, how does the story about Moses and the narrative about Adam and Eve and Satan and the temptation of Adam and Eve relate to the idea that the Quran is not given to you to cause you hardship. How does it all fit together? And that's the... the um, intellectual challenge in Surah Taha. And we'll see what the Surah tells us. And it's layered, and it's rich, and it is also transformative. So, as the Quran itself in Surah Taha, in, in a remarkable passage as we'll see, tells Muslims do not speed through the Quran alerting them that this is a book that needs conscientiousness and deliberation. Do not rush 
to reach conclusions about the meaning of the Quran without sufficient reflection and deliberation, as we will see. And it is significant that this is mentioned and underscored in Surah Taha itself. Um, okay, so it starts out with these two letters, Ta Ha, and there is so much written in the Islamic tradition about these two letters. Um, a great deal, and I don't think we need to go through we need to go through all of it but I'm focusing on the ones that are most pertinent uh, wait I'm trying to get these lines again. Oh. Yeah, how, how do I get these lines again? Technology sucks. Like, you know where you, uh, like, see the line? Yeah. Just click on the line. Take it to a... Yeah. Is that the quote that you wanted? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, just... Is there is there another one? No, it's just I'm, I'm not focusing on this part now. Okay. Yeah, can we just make it a little bit? Yeah, you can shrink that. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Wow. You know, it's uh, Surah Taha talks about uh, magicians, <laughs> <laughs> and what Rami does with this thing that seems to me like the magicians of Moses. It's just like. What the heck? It's so bizarre. You know, all of this doesn't really exist. It 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 will see. It actually reaffirms a um, what Surah Taha says about shadows and delusions, and you know, doesn't really exist. Okay, so Taha is, is, there's so much written about that, partly because phonetically Taha was an expression known in several of the ancient languages uh, that existed in the Near East. So we know that Taha was an actual word in Nabataean. It's an actual word in Syriac. Um, uh, there is, what was the name of this um, uh, Arab group? Um, it, it was even known in one of the dialects in, in Arabic. I can't remember the name of the, of the dialect right now, but... Um, uh, the fact that it was part of these ancient languages 
um, raise the issue of whether, in fact, the ta-ha, these two letters, should be read as a word, and whether it's referring to the meaning that exists in Syriac or Nabataean as the two most prominent languages. And both in Syriac and Nabataean, Taha referred to human beings or people, the, the genre of men or human beings or insan, human being. Um, but in some of the Arabic dialects, old Arabic dialects, Taha referred to purity and cleanliness. So when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala starts this surah with ta'ha, is it that Allah is calling upon human beings and saying, human beings, pay attention? Or is it, as some have said, like Ibn Abbas, that ta'ha is one of the names of Allah which means supreme in purity. Or is it, as some have said, that it is one of the prophet's names in the heavens, that Taha is actually Muhammad himself. And so it's saying, Muhammad, we did not send the Quran upon thee to cause you distress, and, and so on. These are the most prominent ones and the most convincing ones. There are, are there are many others that, um, you know, would would get us. There, there for instance, um, report that the Prophet um would worship for so long and would stand worshiping night after night until um, one of his legs uh, became swollen. And so, uh, well, actually, sorry, it, it, his, his, both his legs became swollen. And so the, then he would stand on one leg with the help of a rope that he would tie um, and keep alternating between both legs all night. So he'd stand on one leg and lift one and then switch between right and left like that. Um, and that then Gabriel, the angel Gabriel is sent to the Prophet والسلام, and, and says, you know, take it easy, basically. Uh, you don't need to go to this lens in worshiping Allah and the ta'ha, ta' refers to um, feet, and ha refers to rest. And so you get these interpretations that tie that narrative to ta'ha 
and say, you know, it's Allah is alerting the Prophet to Gabriel's message to that he doesn't have to be so hard on himself when it comes to worship. And there are, you know, if if you're interested, you can look at something like Mawardi's tafsir and you see all the different... But, but let's go to our original... Um, the, the most likely convincing meaning of Taha is in fact that it does invoke what was known to the Arabic language taken from Syriac and Nabataean um, because we find in pre-Islamic poetry that word, that these two letters, Taha, incorporated in pre-Islamic poetry with their Syrian or Nabataean meaning of human beings. With additionally, as Jafar Sadiq said, that there is convincing evidence that while Taha has a duality of meaning, human beings as well as a special name given to the Prophet by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And as we will see, this fits in with the narrative of Surah Taha and the message that it conveys. Okay, so Taha. The the name of the of the of the tribe is uh, mentioned in Muhammad Asad's tafsir. It's the Yemeni tribe of Ak. Um, that I referred to before. Anyway, so Taha, which gets our attention as human beings and gets our attention in the in the same way it got the attention of the Prophet for we can confidently say that when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says Taha, say, Allah is saying, pay attention. I'm going to deliver, I'm going to give you a message that is central for who you are. We did not send the Quran down to you. Litashka cause you distress. A shaka could be distress, could be pain, could be misery, could be failure. So But it begs the question of what does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala precisely mean when Allah says 
the point of this Quran is not simply to live in hardship or to go through what is burdensome and toilsome for yourself. The point is not for you to perform acts that are strenuous. So what is the point? As we'll see, Surah Taha very clearly tells us the point is to understand. It is a reminder for those who fear. Now, I'm going to say a bit more about man yakhsha. It is a reminder, the Quran persistently says that it is a reminder not to those who are heedless, not to those who are preoccupied with their own personal lives, but it is a reminder to those who already have the inclination of insight and reflection upon their own lives. The Quran will often have nothing to say to those who are superficial and those who are insistent upon a hedonistic life. But this is a part and parcel of the whole paradigm of non-coercion in the Quran. Tanzilan mimman arda wa samawati ula A revelation from God who has created the heavens and earth. Among the most beautiful things I've read is a statement attributed to Jafar al-Sadiq. Specifically on this point, Tazkiratan Limayaksha, a reminder to those A reminder to those who already have a degree of remembrance, degree of reverence. And Jafar al-Sadiq says that لتذكير سابق الوصال لأن الأرواح لما دخلت الأشباح اكتسبت خشية ووحشة وفرقة عن معادنها فأنزل الله القرآن تأنيسا لأن المحب يأنس بكتاب حبيبه وكلامه Very beautiful Says that Souls are ethereal, created from the very substance of divinity. But when these souls enter what 
in this narrative is referred to as al-ashbah, which means that physical bodies, the reason they're called ashbah, is that physical bodies don't have an essential reality of their own. Souls do. They're from the divine, the eternal. But physical bodies are simply an accumulation of cells and molecules that unite through these energy forces that Allah to create to, to perform functions, but they are very quickly rearranged. They, you know, fire melts them, rearranges it. Acid changes their nature very quickly. They, 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 they die. If the soul comes out, the, the, the bodies deteriorate and become dust. So they are like shadows. They don't have a truth unto themselves. They have a functionality. But they don't have a truth unto themselves. So when the souls enter the body, the souls enter something that is not in harmony with its nature. And because the soul enters a physicality, a material physicality that is not in harmony with its nature, the souls are afflicted with a sense of longing and a sense of desire. We as human beings often mistake a desire, that sense of longing, that sense of loneliness, that sense of loss, as, especially as we grow older and we grow more delusional in life, we covet. But as our gaze turns more incre increasingly, instead of our gaze being directed at the heavens, we increasingly gaze on the gra at the ground. So as we grow up, we are taught it's not practical to look at the heavens. It's practical to look where your feet are. So you will mistake the sense of longing for human companionship. The reason I feel so lonely is that I need a friend, I need a husband, I need a wife. Or you will mistake that longing for sexual desire. I need the illusion of physical intimacy which is passing and doesn't last. Or I need this, I need to, to stun my brain into a, a high through alcohol or through drugs or through whatever. But fundamentally, it's that sense of longing. And then Jafar al-Sadiq says, then Allah sent his book as a letter of love and consolation to these longing souls. <coughs> so either you recognize that this is a book from your beloved, this is a book from the one that you long for, and then this book becomes 
its very nature vis-a-vis -vis you becomes one of al-mu'anasa that consolation and companionship or if you've drifted away and you no longer recognize this book as as a book from as the that it is you don't recognize that these are the words coming from what you longed for and the alienation between the soul and the body then increases and the sense of anxiety and restlessness and also insecurity and discomfort with yourself increase and the sense of your ability to do injustice and, and hurt others and not worry about the feelings and rights of others increase and so on and so forth. So, a message sent from the Creator, a revelation sent from the Creator of the heavens and earth, and this is where I, I where the, what I mentioned about what Jafar al-Sadiq is, is reported to have said uh, uh, fits in. And then says, Ar-Rahman ala al-Arsh istawa. Your compassionate Lord has settled on the throne. Now, in, in Quranic commentators, there is a lot of talk about an istwa. Um, but we, that doesn't need to detain us for now. Istwa doesn't mean that someone actually sat on a throne. But it literally means to have total and absolute control of something. Um, so we say things like istawa to shams or istawa nahar that it has become well settled and well established. But this, uh, this might, you know, I don't want it to take us too far afield. So, so. Ar-Rahman has settled on the throne and this Rahman recognize is the owner of all, the owner of the heavens and the earth. And whatever Athara, whatever lies beneath the earth, But not only that, but be aware وَإِن تَجْهَرَ بِالْقَوْلِ فَإِنَّهُ يَعْلَمُ السِّرَّ وَأَخْفَى Whether you speak or not speak something, this is a word that knows all. There are no, there is nothing that can be hidden from the Lord. 
Allahu la ilaha illa huwa lahu al-asma'ul husna This is Allah and there is no god but Allah belongs to Allah the most beautiful names and again the tafsir spent a great deal of attention talking about things like azat was sifat the essence and sifat um, the uh, uh, descriptive terms or characteristic terms um, but for us it is important to just keep in mind that we started out with Allah alerting us to why Allah sent this Quran and Allah is saying if you think the point is for you to labor, just to labor, for the sake of laboring. If you point the point is for you to be sad, or if you think the point is to be for you to be distressed or burdened for its own sake, that's not the that's not it. This book, you have to understand the nature of your Lord in order to understand the message of your Lord. And this is where, you know, Ja'far Sadiq's uh, statement is, is beautiful, it's profound, because it, it relies on, on a remarkable understanding of the Lord. Okay. And a Lord who is the complete has complete supremacy. Nothing that unfolds, nothing that you will experience is outside the control of the Lord. And as we will see, this will become very important to the the basic point of Surah Taha. But to this Lord is the most beautiful names. You pause Al Asma'ul Husna. What if you as a human being you have no sense of beauty? What if you, as a human being, you only understand your dark side? You embrace your dark side. What if you, as a human being, you're skeptical of the very existence of beauty? What if you, as a human being, have reached the point where you say, well, beauty is in the eye of the beholder, it's just relative. Nothing is really beautiful and nothing is really ugly. It's all anthropological. It's all just cultural. It's a challenge. 
because it told you I don't want you to be burdened but it also told you that you want to understand this God well there is no path if you don't understand beauty how are you gonna understand a God who has the most beautiful names if you yourself you are either ugly or have embraced the ugly or you don't believe in the existence of beauty in the first place and this is again remember this is to a people who are persecuted people who are seeing the ugly side of human beings every day people who have every reason to be skeptical that humanity is capable of any beauty and as we'll see surah taha comes in and says you know this is not you you are here for a purpose and a reason so after telling you then that to allah is the most beautiful names it immediately jumps into the story of Moses. If you're studying the Quran carefully, you must then ask yourself, this introduction relates to the narrative that I'm going to be told, but how? Okay, so after saying that, to Allah belongs the most beautiful names. Immediately the Quran goes on to the story of Moses. And, and the, the style is of course it's a it's a rhetorical question. Have you heard about the story of Moses? Now note this is Mecca, and the number of Jews in Mecca is very limited, if any. And one of the most remarkable things is that if you, is the way that the, the, the differences between the Quran as to how it tells the story of Moses and the Bible especially the Old Testament, of course, the, the Torah. Um, because these differences are rather material and critical. So, have, have rhetorically, have you heard about the story of Moses? And right away, it goes to that period in, in Surah Qasas, which is revealed after Surah Taha, we will know what happens to Moses before what verse 10 talks about. Because verse 10 right away says that Moses is with his family and he tells his family, stay here because I think I spotted a fire. The background to this, which we know from later revelation, 
is that after Moses had fled Egypt, because he was on the run, because he had killed an Egyptian um, in manslaughter, the, the, he hit an Egyptian, Moses was strong, and the Egyptian died as a result. And Moses learns that there is a conspiracy to kill him in retaliation. And he goes on to run, and he reaches um, he reaches the city of um, Madian. 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 The city of Madian. And in the city of Madian, as we learn from Surah Qasas, is where he gets married. Eventually, he tells the, I'm like, what's the name of the prophet? Um, the prophet of Madian. Eventually, he told the prophet tribe that I want to go back to Egypt to see my mother. And prophet of tribe says, okay, and so prophet tribe says, okay, so Moses takes his family from Median and travels back through the Sinai de desert, heading to Egypt to see his mother. In that trip, Moses gets lost. Now, interestingly, Surah Taha doesn't tell us any of this. It just jumps right away to the scene where Moses is in the desert and leaves his family seeking out a fire or a light that he saw. As if these details is not important for the point that Surah Taha is going to deliver. So he gets lost in the desert, he has his family, and they are desperate to find someone who can tell them the way back to, tell, give them directions, basically put them back on the right direction. And at that point, he, there's no one around, and he sees a light from afar, and he tells his family, "I maybe there are people where this light is, so let me go and try to get help. It's a point of, from the perspective of Moses, it's a rather low point in their life. He's on the run. He's missing his, his mother. He has a family that is running out of water and provisions. They're lost in the desert. We don't know exactly what Mos the feelings of Moses are, but we know it's a grim picture. 
in the Quranic expression, أو أجد على النار هدى so that I perhaps I will find guidance at the fire. Remarkable expression, as if sort of giving you a hint of the transformation that will come. Moses approaches the fire or the light. In the Bible, it's a tree. In the Quran, it doesn't mention a tree, a lit tree or a luminous tree or that mythology. But upon entering a certain area that it still exists, Moses sees a light and hears a voice now, in the Islamic tradition, we don't, the, 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 everything that has been reported about what this light exactly was and what this, it, 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 the, the, the tone of the voice, the, how loud the voice, is all not reliable. It's not, the, the Quran doesn't pause at these details as if to say, you know, th that's not the point. Which in the Bible, the, 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 feature rather prominently comes the message directly from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the message is that pay attention you are al-bilwadi al-muqaddasi You are in a blessed, sacred spot, a sacred space. And as a sign of this transformation, Moses is told to take off his shoes. Now again, there are traditions that talk, you'll be surprised how much is written about this little thing, take off your shoes. The, the most insignificant of, of these reports is that what were the shoes made of, whether they were made of hides, a hide of a donkey, and um, that, that stuff doesn't matter. But symbolically, taking off the shoes is significant. Not just as a sign of respect, but for the very transformation that Moses will is being told to undergo. Whether Moses taking off his shoes in Wad al-Muqaddas is the reason that we take off our shoes uh, in a mosque, whether you are told that when you attend a a halakha of learning, you must take off your shoes. So much is written about that, but I'm not going to pause at it. The, taking off the shoes was symbolically, in that culture, a symbol of willingness to transform, not just a symbol 
of in respect and recognition that you are in a special space, but the willingness to transform is what is emphasized in a lot of especially Sufi-esque tafsirs. Okay. And what is Moses then told? Moses, you are chosen. You have been chosen, so listen to what is being revealed. It's like Allah saying, listen carefully, pay attention. إِنَّنِي أَنَا اللَّهُ لَا إِلَهَ إِلَّا أَنَا فَاعْبُدْنِي وَأَقْمِ الصَّلَاةَ لِذِكْرِي I am the one and only true God. So worship me and uphold prayer in my remembrance. And the final hour is coming, and akadu some Orientalist scholars misunderstood this as Allah saying the final hour is imminent, and it is so imminent that it is very close to you. That's not what Akadu Ukhfiha means. Akadu Ukhfiha is that I am, I hide the final hour. Idiomatically, it means I even hide, it's so secret that I even hide it from my own kingdom, from my own Arsh, that many of the angels themselves don't know when the final hour is. And the Quran insists that the final hour will only come to us as a surprise and that we will not know when the final hour is. Okay. فَلَا يَصُدُّنَّكَ عَنْهَا مَنْ لَا يُؤْمِنُ بِهَا وَاتَّبَعَ هَوَاهَ فَتَرَدَّ And so surely the final hour is coming that every soul might receive their reward. So do not let those who do not believe distract you. And do not let especially those who follow their whims. And because they follow their whims, fataradda means literally they, they fall. The, the path of whims is the fallen path. Fataradda doesn't mean necessarily to perish, but it means to, to like literally have a steep fall. That's a taraddi. And to be lowly, so it's a it's a fall from which you might not recover. Okay, so so far, what is being told to Moses is equally relevant 
to Muhammad and this is your God is the one and only God the path is a path that that requires your attention it's not a path of whims and caprice it's not a one a path you can follow by being heedless and unattentive and in fact if you are not alert to what comes from your whimsicalness or your 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 base self rather than from god you will be among the fallen and this is all as an introduction then the narrative Allah speaking directly to Moses we have something that is rather surprising Allah says to Moses what is this what is this that you're holding in your right hand and Moses says it's my stick it's my cane And what Moses comments about it is alayha, I, I use it for walking and I use it for shepherding taking care of my and I have other things that I do with it. Well, obviously Allah sees the king. Right? So why does Allah says what is this in your right Moses and note the 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 remarkable touching point here two points one it is as if Allah is, if, if you are in, 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 in Moses' shoes, which he's taken off, this is extremely stressful. He was probably extremely nervous, not just learning that he's chosen after the life he's had, but that the Lord is speaking to him and he is going to be given a mission the like of which is extremely terrifying but he doesn't know about the mission yet but he knows this extremely unnerving moment where he hears and sees what stretches the bounds of reality in every way and when Allah says what is this you're holding it's like chit chat that comforts a human being obviously Allah sees what Moses is holding but it's like giving Moses an opportunity to talk there isn't in a, a 
narrative, or there, there is a part of what is said about Moses, is that he had a speech impediment from an old injury as a child. Although I, the, this probably not a reliable narrative that he put a coal in his piece of coal in his mouth. That part is probably not reliable, but he suffered from a speech impediment. So he's already conscious about the fact that he is not a very eloquent speaker. He has... He speaks with some difficulty. And he starts rambling when Allah asks him, what is this that you're holding? So he says, this is my stick, I use it for walking, and I use it for shepherding. It's, he's rambling. And it's as if at this point he realizes he's rambling, so he catches himself and says, oh, and I do other things. A remarkably humanistic picture conveyed to you by the author who can only have been there. Because you don't get this from the Bible. When I say that decolonialize Islamic studies and this is the type of things that most a Muslim would notice but an Orientalist because when you read the Orientalist narratives they focus so much on they, they don't notice the differences between the biblical narrative and the Quranic narrative the differences are far more significant than the similarities So Moses catches himself and says, okay, you know, I'm rambling. Of course, God obviously knows I use my stick to walk and I use my stick to shepherd. So, okay, and I have other things I do, God, and he, he keeps quiet. But at that point, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells Moses, okay, this stick you, that is yours and you're very familiar with it, Now, throw it. And we know that when Moses throws the stick, Allah shows Moses that this stick can transform into something else. This encounter, the impact of this narrative and this encounter upon Sufi-isk traditions, cannot be exaggerated. Why? Because what Allah is telling Moses is the same, very close to what Jafar al-Sadiq is telling us about the nature of souls and bodies. Do you see this physical reality that you live in? I just told you that Allah is the supreme, the controller of all. But this very physical reality that looks to you very solid and very non-negotiable, in fact, has no essential truth to it. A stick can become a snake and a snake can become a stick in an instant. Moses, in in order for Moses to get the strength to do what he is going to do, and it is no small task, 
Moses' entire orientation to reality must transform. So we have in Surah Taha the theme of transformation once again. We have not sent the Quran upon you to cause you distress. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is bringing in the metaphor of transformation right away to the Prophet who's receiving this at a time of hardship and misery. So, not only that, but even your body that you are well acquainted with, put your hand whether he put it in his pocket or he put his hand under his armpit or put his hand to the side, it doesn't, doesn't need to detain us. Uh, the study Quran says, uh, and enclose thy hand in thy side. Okay, they chose the side. Uh, whatever. Okay. So take your hand. And it is not that your hand comes out white. Well, Moses was dark-skinned. He's a Mediterranean and an Israelite, so he's dark-skinned. But it's not that his hand came out like a white person, but luminous. So it's not just white without blemish, but that his hand looked like it's a luminous substance, a luminosity that has no source. Now, after this, this encounter in which the very nature of reality is Moses is invited to in transformation as to the very nature of reality. The very next thing is the obligation and the charge at taklif. What is the taklif? Go to the Pharaoh, Imnahu Taha, the study Quran translates it, go to the Pharaoh for the Pharaoh has rebelled. It's not that the Pharaoh has rebelled. Idhab ila fir'awna fa'innahu innahu tagha. Go to the Pharaoh because the Pharaoh is an oppressor. Tagha, al-tughyan, is to an excessive oppression gross injustice. Now note another very important difference in the Quranic narrative 
Moses is charged with what we would call a just cause. Moses is going to confront oppression. Not a racial or tribal cause. And we'll see this in the entire dynamic with Moses. Yes, he is liberating the Israelites, but it's because the Israelites are an especially oppressed people in Egypt. But his invitation is much wider than simply the Israelites. And in fact, in Islamic sources, we are told that there are many converts that follow Moses who are not Israeli. So that many Egyptians, like for instance the magicians and Pharaoh's wife, who convert because they understand that what Moses is calling for is a universal cause for human beings, for Taha, not for a tribe or a race or a people. If Muhammad was copying from the Bible, he would have never reached these points. It's a completely different narrative. It's a different, completely different orientation. So go to the Pharaoh, because the Pharaoh is an oppressor. Moses understands that he's not going to go have tea with the Pharaoh. He knows the Pharaoh. He grew up in the Pharaoh's palace, remember. He was raised in that palace. And as we will talk about, inshallah, in Surah Al-Qasas, Moses was not called as a prophet until life experiences got the palace out of him. As long as he was a spoiled kid who was raised in the Pharaoh's palace, he couldn't control his temper. He couldn't control himself. He had to go through immense hardship and suffering before he elevated to the level where he could be Allah's messenger. So many tafsirs never point, ne never notice this. But it all relates to Tashka. Like a symphonic performance. So he is he knows the Pharaoh and he knows the Pharaoh's injustice and he knows the type of suffering and pain the Pharaoh is capable of creating. Let's not forget that Moses wanted to go back to Egypt to see his mother, to visit his mother. And he knows what the Pharaoh does to the descendants of Israel. 
the Israelites. But he also knows something else about the Pharaoh. The Pharaoh is extremely arrogant and high and mighty. And classic, typical of the epistemology of the age and for centuries to come, centuries before and centuries to come, power is mystified. Power is mystified. The holders of power are seen as like mystical beings. The, the, the repository of a mystical wisdom. There is a symbiotic relationship between the holders of power and the priesthood, the servers of the temple, where the priests feed the mystification of power and the holders of power keep the priests spoiled and rich and comfortable. But there's another element. The role of the occult. The occult is very important to the performance of theater in old religions. Here's a little hint. If you've read the history of Nazi Germany, you are immediately struck by the fact that Nazis was, were obsessed by the image. Everything was about the construction of the image. But Nazis were also obsessed with the occult. Nazis invested an enormous amount of money in occult sciences. They even tried to build a flying saucer and an anti-gravitational uh, uh, vehicle. And it... Human beings long for transcendence. But either they fulfill this transcendence with God, or if they don't have God, they long for transcendence, the fulfillment of transcendence through other means, either through the means of belief in super things, aliens, shadow men, mythology, the God of the West, the East, the South, and the North, the four elements, the all the, 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 the new agey things that we have today, all part of the occult, which by the way, the occult was played a huge role in the building of modernity, just that we, we don't like to teach that in our schools. Or, if they don't have that, then they invest a lot of money in sending ships to the moon and sending explorations to Mars. Hey, you know, money could that could have fed a lot of needy people and could have helped a lot of oppressed people. But it's the longing for transcendence. 
And it, it manifests its, itself through numerous ways throughout human history. And at the time of the Pharaoh, what is magic used for? It is used for what we use televisions and movies and propaganda what we use these things for in our modern age. The construction of an image. The magicians are not just tricksters. The magicians are there to convince the laity, look, this emperor, this king, this pharaoh has special powers. He knows what you don't know. Don't question him. Power is a mystery that you cannot possibly comprehend. Amazing. What is really amazing is that this is being told to the prophet sitting in Mecca at the time that he's oppressed. This is deep philosophy. So Moses receives the charge and this amazing prayer that for every lecture I've given, every class I've given, every halqa I've given, I repeat this prayer before. sadri amri lisani translated. Quran it says expand for me my breast. Ishrahli Sadri means calm me down. Give me tranquility. Settle me. So I'm not so anxious and so nervous that my feelings overcome my thoughts and I can't be coherent. And help me. Because without your help, nothing is going to work. And allow me to be articulate enough so I will not be misunderstood. Very... It's what all of us need. And after that, then Moses tells Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and I need Aaron's help. It is said that Aaron was far more eloquent than Moses. And Moses asked Allah that Aaron be his deputy. And the request is granted. But look 
that the, the, the Quranic, these are the variances between the, the, the Quran and the Bible, and there are many. I mean, if, if you can read the, the biblical narrative for yourself, and you'll see that it's um, in Exodus and otherwise quite different. But anyway, so that when when Moses asked for Aaron for Harun to be his his helper says ajdud bihi azri wa shrikhu fi amri so that he would be my support and wa shrikhu fi amri so we can consult with one another Remarkable humility before our Allah. So both of us can supplicate and worship you all the time. So it is the, the way that Moses speaks to God in the Quran the, the the tone that Moses had in speaking to God is very different than the biblical narrative. And at that point Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reminds Moses whether in fact this reminder took place in the valley or whether the Quran is talking as it often does, talking to Moses, because in the Quran, the, the, the past, future, and present are often addressed as if they're, for Allah, they're all the same. Um, when Allah tells Moses, either literally or figuratively in the Quran, about a reminder of how he was cast in the river as a as a child because as he um, that Pharaoh had decided to kill the all the male born children of the Israelites and Moses' mother puts Moses in a stream and then is found by the Pharaoh and and so on that that uh, common narrative, but a couple of things to note here, which are like um, fascinating sidebars. Verse twenty nine. At that point of absolute I mean, imagine a mother in order to shave her child from death she puts her child in a floater and sends a child in a river that's an absolute low point of hopelessness but Allah comments on this it says this is in 29, uh, uh, thir uh, 
أنا أقذفيه للتابوت فاقذفيه في اليم فليلقي اليم بالساحل يأخذه عدو لي وعدو له وألقيت عليك محبة مني ولتصنع على عيني. So two things. One that Allah says that at this moment of the absolute low moment and moment of desperation is actually the point where Allah's love manifests. And in fact, that was the point that Allah was, as the expression, is, is just remarkable. So that though might be formed under my eye, obviously it's uh, uh, idiomatic. It's literally so that you will be crafted under my own direct care would have Moses' mother imagined that. Would have Moses, any outside observer, would not see this as a point of victory or hope. But the other thing is that at that point that you will be picked up as an infant by an enemy to you and an enemy to me. Hope can rise in the most unpredictable and unlikely of places. If you pick a child and that child is picked by an enemy of the child and an enemy of God, you don't think of this as a very hopeful situation. But this is precisely the point. You, human beings, don't know. And don't presume to know. You do your job as to where hope lies, where the possibilities might sprout, where things might change, where the transformation might come, all of that is none of your business. You do your job. Moses growing in the palace of Pharaoh would not have been seen as a point of victory for the Israelites or for Allah or for anyone. But that's precisely what was unfolding. As we will, we will talk about in Surah Al-Qasas, Moses grows up in the palace enjoying the luxuries until he starts becoming aware of the oppressive injustice that exists outside the palace. But he has a temper problem. 
And his temper problem leads him to kill a person by mistake. And the cost he pays for this is to live in abject poverty for many years. And for his entire career as a product of the palace to be undone. Because he's, he, he's not, he was weaned to occupy prestigious positions. But he is forced to go on the run and to, instead of being the, uh, you know, having the, 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 the track record, the career of someone who was raised in the palace, the adopted child of the pharaoh, he instead goes and marries the daughter of a very poor man in Median and lives with the most humble profession in Median for many, many years. And it is missing his mother that calls him to take the risk of going to Egypt camouflaged and secret because that's part of the reason he gets lost is that he doesn't want anyone to know who he is as he returns to Egypt because he's still afraid that if they if, if anyone finds out who he is that he'll be killed because of not because of who the pharaoh is because there's no issue with the pharaoh at that point or no serious issue with the pharaoh but there is a serious issue about the people, the, the relatives of the person that he's killed. But that is the point that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then completes Moses' transformation. And Moses goes back to Egypt in a very different role, a role that shocks the Pharaoh. You are coming back challenging me, standing up to me. The irony is why doesn't the Pharaoh kill Moses right away? He doesn't precisely because he thought he would make an example out of Moses because that is dissension within the ranks. Someone who grew up in the palace is now standing up and saying, you know, despite all the show, all the temples, all the priesthood, all the magicians, I know the truth of this pharaoh. And despite all the mystifications of his power, I am telling you, someone who grew up in his palace, that he's a fraud. The Pharaoh had to make an example out of Moses. And he has no reason to believe that Moses is capable of challenging the institutions of the state. Of course, if Moses is challenged by the magicians, he's going to fail. And that's the confrontation that the Qur'an tells us about or leads up to.
Oh, I, I forgot. Um, uh, so this is at um, um, 46 to 49. When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says to Moses, فَأَتِيَاهُ فَقُولَ إِنَّ رَسُولَ رَبِّكَ فَرْسِ الْمَعْنَى بَنِي إِسْرَائِيلِ وَلَا تُعَذِّبْهُمْ وَلَا تُعَذِّبْهُمْ تُعَذِّبْهُمْ قَدْ جِئْنَاكَ بِآيَةٍ مِنْ رَبِّكَ وَالسَّلَامُ عَلَى مَنِ اتَّبَعَ الْهُدَى Before that, I'm sorry, uh, 44. فَقُولَ لَهُ قَوْلًا لَيِّنَا لَعَلَّهُ يَتَذَكَّرُ أَوْ يَخْشَى This is 44 where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is telling Moses go to Pharaoh and speak to, to the Pharaoh gently that the Pharaoh may remember and fear. Muslim commentators who used to take the Quran far more seriously than we do, of course, noticed that Allah knew who the Pharaoh was and knew that the Pharaoh is not going to respond to gentle speech. And the Pharaoh is not going to be spoken to gently and he says, oh, okay, you have a point. Yeah, I, I'm, I, I'm not semi-god or a full god or I'm sorry for all the injustice I've committed. So the commentators then ask why does God tell Moses go speak to him gently? And because they reflected on things seriously and they understood this to be a lesson to the Prophet Muhammad and to the followers of the Prophet. Oppression, yes, I know you're oppressed. Yeah, I know you are suffering like the Israelites. But that doesn't give you an excuse to go to the route of my past is the path of condemnation. I am here to condemn you and doom you. This is but a remembrance. Remember what the Quran started out with in Surah Ta. But as we'll see, there is more to this. Because it is not just that they're going to go speak to the Pharaoh gently, but note. They don't speak to the Pharaoh privately. Now, why is this important? Well, because so many modern Muslims, if you talk to all the Emirati Shiuch and all the Saudi Shiuch, they tell you, oh, when you do, when you talk to the ruler and you try to correct the ruler, you have to do it privately so you don't embarrass the ruler. This, every, you, you can't escape it. It's all over their literature, all over their lectures, all over their sermons. Every other khutbah at the haram. Some guy gets up and says, oh, those who dare have evil thoughts about the ruler, you're not allowed to have negative thoughts about your ruler, you're not ha you're allowed to correct your ruler in public, 
you can only correct the ruler in private and only if it doesn't bruise his feelings. And <laughs> yes, you have an obligation to pursue the path of your Lord gently. But this is not a path of corruption and indulgence of the unjust. You will also do it publicly because you have to educate and you have to uphold the principle. So, what is the, the result of this public confrontation? The result of this public confrontation is a debate. Now, Look at the mechanics of the debate. So, this is around 48, 49, so on. So, the Pharaoh is debating these people and he says, wait, who is this God of yours? And they say, this is our God that has created everything. And the Pharaoh says, oh, really? So how about all these generations of past? You know, we have a way of doing things in this country. We have a style of living. We have our way. And our way goes back centuries. And so you're coming now today to tell us we're doing things the wrong way, so how about that? And Moses' response, as communicated by the Quran, not the Bible, is amazing. He says, that's up to God. This is 52. Nothing is overlooked by God, but it's up to God. I'm not here to tell you what's going to happen, what, what the judgment is about the past generations. I'm here to tell you that what is going on right now is intolerable, oppressive, and unjust. Now, Again, because our predecessors took the Qur'an far more seriously than us, Muslim scholars paused and said, the Qur'an spends time to tell the Prophet about this debate. Why? Why tell the Prophet? The Prophet knows what debates are. The Prophet is living debates night and day with the Kuffar of Mecca. So why does Allah spend time to tell the Prophet, Moses said, the Pharaoh said, Moses said, look at this passage. And again, unfortunately, I, I'll, I'll do it first in Arabic and then Paraphrase it.
لما دعاه إلى الله تعالى لم يشتغل معه بالبطش والإزاء بل خرج معه في المناظرة لما أنه لو شرع أولا في الإزاء لنسب إلى الجهل والسفاهة فاستنكف من ذلك وشرع أولا في المناظرة وذلك يدل على أن السفاهة من غير الحجة شيء ما كان يرتضيه مع كما حتى فرعون مع كمال جهله وكفره فكيف يليق ذلك بمن يدعي الإسلام والعلم ثم إن فرعون لما سأل موسى عليه السلام عن ذلك قبل موسى ذلك السؤال واشتغل بإقامة الدلائل على وجود الصانع وذلك يدل على فساد التقليد ويدل, ويدل أيضا على فساد قول التعليمية الذين يقولون نستفيد معرفة الإله من قول الرسول لأن موسى عليه السلام اعترفها هنا بأن معرفة الله تعالى يجب أن تكون مقدمة على معرفة الرسول وتدل على فساد قول الحشوية الذين يقولون نستفيد معرفة الله والدين من الكتاب والسنة Unbelievable Unbelievable This was written in the 12th century AD And what it's saying is that, look, Allah is telling us about the debate because here there is a principle that only the weak avoid debate and resort to force right away. Only those who have no evidence and have no logic and have no rational capacity that even Pharaoh understood Pharaoh as arrogant and unjust as he was understood that he can't just resort to violence right away because it would look bad it would look like he has no evidence and has no uh, uh, logic so if it is unbecoming of the Pharaoh to resort to oppression right away, how about Muslims? Then it says, and then there are, in our age, there are those that are known as a ta'limiyya. This is a sect that has died, but is still alive. It's still alive among the Wahhabis and Salafis. It died in name only. A ta'limiyya said, the only way that we know that Allah exists is because the Prophet said so. There is, don't think about the existence of Allah through rational means or any other means other than just obey the Prophet. But not only do, are the Ta'limiyya wrong, but he goes even further and says the Hashawiyya are wrong. Why? Because the Hashawiyya said we only know what Allah is and what religion is by from the Quran and Sunnah. You should never think beyond the Quran and Sunnah. The Hashawiyya said, Ma'rifatillah wa deen min al-kitab wa sunnah. That 
if if you say to the Hashawiya, I have a question, well, you know, how do we know that Allah is this? Say, Astaghfirullah, Quran says this, Sunnah says this, then that's your answer. That's a Hashawiya. Or why in Islam do we do this or do that? Say, because the Quran is Sunnah. That's it. The amazing thing is, are these, our ancestors, could you have imagined that the day would come where the vast majority of Muslims today in the modern age are Hashawiyyah? We're all Hashawiyyah. We just don't know it. The reason that the upholding of the principle of evidence and proof you're not going to force strong-armed people into belief. You can't pull things like, well, you just have to obey the Quran and Sunnah and that's it. Don't use your brain. Al-Razi, who wrote these words, who, by the way, Razi was very much an anti-Mu'tazili because of the ignorant people say, oh, because Razi was Mu'tazili. As far from Mu'tazili as you get. But the Hashawiya was never mainstream Islam until our modern age. All the, the, the people that you hear that tell you, don't think, don't ask, don't think, just Quran and Sunnah, that's, a, that's your answer. They're all Hashawiya. They don't even reach to the point of being at least Ta'limiya, which is a little bit elevated than Hashawiya. So, the debate doesn't get anywhere, and it gets to the point of, well, let's have a showdown of performance. A theatrical performance. Pharaoh is relying on the instrumentalities of the state. The people, the magicians who are going to put on a show and the show, by pharaonic standards, if you if you read pharaonic history, they were excellent showmen. They knew how to put on theater. They put on impressive displays using shadows and lights and magic and all types of things. And Moses is going to put on his own show relying Allah subhanahu, on Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And we know how that show goes. Moses shows the magicians themselves that while they manipulate images to produce theater, Moses presents people at the time with a miracle that shows that reality is determined by Allah. You know, the, the, the ropes and the snakes that the, the magicians throw, ropes that they, they fool people into thinking that these ropes move around and wiggle around that these ropes are, are alive. 
and then Moses, in a far more impressive display, whatever they, what the display exactly was, it doesn't matter from a Muslim perspective. What matters is the way that the Quran comments on it very succinctly and very right to the point. 69 What does a what is this comment? It's the study Quran says, and the sorcerer will not prosper wherever the the sorcerer goes. Well, not quite. Those who manipulate imagery, those who in our age produce propaganda, those who manipulate reality, that's a sahir. They produce no good. This is not the path. It is no good. The Pharaoh is unjust, but the Pharaoh is also a liar and a deceiver. So what is the Quran telling the Prophet Pay attention to your the liars and deceivers in your age. And what is the Quran telling us today? Pay attention to the liars and deceivers in your age. Pay attention to the pharaohs and the magicians and the sorcerers. Now, the sorcerers, the magicians themselves follow Moses. And we know that Asia, from, from elsewhere, we know from Surah Al-Qasas and elsewhere that Asia herself Pharaoh's wife follows Moses. She's tortured to death. And look at what happens to the saucers. The saucers say, We follow now Moses, we see the truth. And Pharaoh's response. Like all tyrants and oppressors, he says, says, you made up your mind without my permission? You actually have a brain? You think you can decide what you believe in? Literally, you believed before I give you permission? And the Pharaoh says, I will crucify you and I will cut your hand and I will cut your foot and let you bleed to death. And their response is, fine. Not, we're happy about it, but that's our fate, that's our fate. Don't let that pass. Pause. And say, whoa, hold on. 
Asya is going to believe and she's going to be tortured to death. The sorcerers are going to believe or they believed and they're going to be tortured to death. And the Quran started out by saying, وَمَا أَنزَلْنَا عَلَيْكَ الْقُرْآنَ لِتَشْقَى We have not sent you the Quran to cause you distress. If that doesn't make you pause and think about what does the Quran mean by distress, then you're not paying attention. Because modern Muslims, you tell them anything, you say, oh, but the Quran says, You know, pray a little extra. No, but Allah says, You know, fast a little extra. No, Speak the truth. Stand up against injustice. No, but Allah said, You're not paying attention. How about the sorcerers? were tortured to death. And yet that's consistent with وَمَا أَنزَلْنَا عَلَيْكَ قُرْآنَ لِتَشْقَى So what is the lesson that the, Surah, that the Quran is conveying to you? And the expression of the sorcerers is remarkable. فَقْدِ مَا أَنْتَ قَادْ إِنَّمَا تَقْدِي هَذِي الْحَيَاةُ الدُّنْيَا This is 72, when they tell the Pharaoh, well, Whatever, whatever you judge, whatever you do to us, it's just life on this earth. The suffering that we have to endure is limited to life on this earth. In Surah Taha, we are not given much details about the parting of the Red Sea, but that the followers of Moses go on the run, pursued by the Pharaoh, and it's mentioned briefly in Surah Taha. And again, some of the the, the remarkable insights from um, if. Muslim scholars reflected at length about not so much the Pharaoh, but the followers of the Pharaoh, the soldiers of the Pharaoh. Because if you are pursuing someone and you see the Red Sea part for them and they pass, and then your leader in his megalomania says, we're going to make the same crossing. You would have to be completely brainwashed and cowardly to say, yes, sir. And you follow in a surreal alternate reality. Whether you, you, you believe all of this is metaphorical or actual, but it, the, the lesson, the moral lesson is the point. How many
people follow tyrants literally into a parted Red Sea. Literally follow tyrants into utter desolation and destruction. And that's what gave a lot of Muslim scholars pause. What happens to the, the type of human being that follow megalomaniacs and tyrants and oppressors unthinkingly and uncritically, they can witness a debate and it doesn't faze them. They can witness a miracle and it doesn't faze them. And they can follow the tyrant all the way to their utter ruin and destruction. And remarkably, so many of the most Muslim literature is replete with these discourses about a people that become of the mentality of the herd, exactly like Pharaoh's followers. cannot be Muslim, remarkably. A mentality of a herd is unbecoming of a Muslim. But Surah Taha, this is not yet the the bottom of what human psyches can reach surah taha is is literally like taking us to a journey of of reflection on all the the painful truths about the human psychology and what it's capable of, there is even something worse than that the, those that followed the Pharaoh to be drowned unto ruin in a tahluka. And who does something worse? Some of the believers. Some of those that followed Moses. Because after seeing the miracle that they saw, Surah Taha tells us something that is remarkable. Before the Israelites, as they were ready, getting ready to leave, Some of the Israelites started borrowing utensils, gold utensils, and valuable things from their neighbors. 
knowing fully well that they're going to migrate so that they never intended to return them. If you borrow something never intending to return it, that's what? Stealing. In the Bible, this is told with a tone of triumphalism. The Israelites gave the Egyptians their due. They did the right thing. In the Quran, it has a very different tone. The all the 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 um, the tribalism that you find in the Bible. It's missing from the moral ethical text of the Quran. In the Quran, those people who borrowed these things that they never intended to return, they are described as as if they're literally carrying sin. The Israelites are carrying with them sin. And it eventually dawns on them that after the miracle that they've seen, that they're carrying something haram. All this gold that they took from people never intending to return, and I'm not saying all the Israelites did that. In fact, you know, the Muslim, the Muslim sources talk about you know how many, and but we don't. That doesn't. But it, why is it relevant? It's it's relevant especially for the ethical point that's going to come. Is that Moses after crossing the Red Sea, and now he's back into the desert. And he takes a group, how large the group is, that doesn't need to detain us, but he takes, and you know, whether this group was like its closest disciples or whatnot, but he basically is longing to go back to meet his Lord to once again convene with his Lord. That's understandable. I mean, if you have that experience, it that's all you can think of. But he rushes ahead, leaving his people behind. One, he's not sure whether all of these people should go to the same locations, two, they slow him down. And he leaves Aaron in charge. Not of the little group that goes with him, but of the main group of Israelites who stay back in camp. As Moses goes to meet his Lord and receive the Ten Commandments, the law. And by the way, 
if we don't have time to do it tonight, inshallah, we'll do it in the in the future. To compare the Ten Commandments, as in the Bible, as opposed to the Islamic version. Because in the in the Islamic version of the Ten Commandments, they're 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 clearly ethical principles stated in the absolute. Anyway, so the Israelites decide we're going to get rid of all this gold that we have unjustly taken and they decide to dump it. Why is this material? Because of the figure known as a Samari, the Sumerian. Or now, of course, whether he was himself an Israelite or a convert, or there is a group that is in Israel till today that uh, are called the, I think, the Samarite Israelites. Um, are they descendants from the same people? Who knows? But anyway, but what is important about Samari is that he takes this gold and melts it, and from it builds a golden calf, and the golden calf is built in such a way that when wind blows at it, it produces a sound. Again, showmanship. It appears remarkable, something miraculous. And in the absence of Moses, the Israelites go back to the idea Instead of a transcendental God, we need something concrete and material. Asamari positions himself as receiving revelation in Moses' absence and says that you worship this holy idol and the, the... and as a, as a as a way of interceding with the divine, as a way of a, you have a concrete idol before you. Now, the most remarkable thing is that in the Sufi esque tafsir, they tell you it is so easy to read the story of a Samari and say, that's not me. But in the Sufi ask the Fasir, they tell you, that's all of us. All of us find the idea of a transcendental God difficult. And when we get tired because we don't want to work hard enough to have an experience with the transcendental God, such as seeing luminous lights or seeing a vision of beauty that we try to concretize God 
into talisman, into little superstitious items of belief. So in effect, we produce our golden calves. And in, so in Islamic sources, they tell you that's why Allah is telling the Prophet in Surah Taha about this. And telling Muslims, because listen, it's not just to the Prophet, this is to the early, early generation of Muslims. It is not just escaping your oppressors and beating the persecution that the challenge. The challenge comes in the way that beliefs are corrupted when you try to get take shortcuts. In the Bible, Aaron himself worships the golden calf. In the Quran, of course Aaron doesn't do that. In the Quran, Moses comes back and the first thing he does is he has a massive fight with his brother. Why in God's name didn't you stop them? And Aaron says, Listen, the Sumerian was so, the Samurite, actually because they're not, he's not Sumerian, the Samurai was so charismatic that the only way I could stop them is to have a civil war. That I would take my group and it would lead to violence. And I was worried that you're going to say that in my absence, you broke up Benu Israel, you've broken up the followers. Moses doesn't compromise with the corruption of belief. He promptly takes the golden calf and destroys it. And makes it clear that if you insist on if this is your path, then you can't be my followers. And the of course the samurai doesn't have a very good faith because his punishment is is to go around and says Lamasas, which basically it seems he was so inflicted by some skin condition or skin disease, maybe leprosy, who knows, that where he could, that's Allah's punishment. But as as even Muslim authorities tell you, it doesn't matter whether whether the, this guy would have been punished by Allah on this earth or in the hereafter, it's not something that we need to pause at. That's not relevant to us. Okay, let's let's stop here and pray, Mahab. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Let's start again. After the summary, is sent away with this punishment. Allah Subhanahu wa Taala 
There is an intermission in the narrative where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then tells the Prophet that that this is a narrative a call for reflection upon the tales of those before and let's see how they translated this and how the in the final day or in the hereafter those oh yeah so and the study Quran translated translate under the the day that the trumpet shall be blown and we shall gather the guilty on that day blind. Um Zurqa is could be correctly translated as blind, and that's probably how it should be translated. Uh, but the 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 um, what's interesting about it is Um, some of the commentaries note that Zurqat uh, al-Ain, which means literally, in, in the most literal sense, blue eyes, and that um, for the Arabs at the time, they used to consider blue eyes to be the worst possible eye color. Um, and that it was, a, it was a sign of ill omen. If someone has blue eyes, they consider it Ill, an ill omen. So, you know, for... Um, so, I mean, some of the poetry, لَقَدْ زَرْقَتْ عَيْنَاكَ يَا إِبْنَ مَكَعْبَرَ أَلَا كُدْلَ طَبْيًا مِنَ you know, your, your eyes are blue like all evil things that have, in life that have blue eyes. Um, and of course, I don't think the Quran was referring to, to blue eyes, but it was referring to blindness, which blue eye also could mean blind. But the, it, it's interesting because um, of, uh, I mean, how things change and how racial identity and class and all of that is constructed. Uh, it, nowadays, if um, if someone is born blue-eyed in Egypt, uh, if a woman is, especially a woman, if born blue-eyed, she'd have a, a line of people proposing to her. 
um, you know, if, if you're blue-eyed, in fact, you know, they say, oh, my, you know, got my, married my daughter who's blue-eyed, which is considered a sign of prestige, and, um, but that, that's, uh, that's after colonialism, um, where blue-eyed became sort of, blue-eyed became associated with everything that our common modern experiences have taught us to associate with blue-eyed and whiteness, generally. And then the, the comment, again, the Quran's comment about the, the end of days where the mountains would be blown, um, and the, if you look at 107, لا لا ترى فيها عوجا ولا أمتا. There are some Orientalists have made a big deal about that word أمتا. This is 107, and trying to prove that the Quran was actually not written in Arabic, but written in Syriac. It's a stupid point. Um, I, I don't even want to spend time on it, but... Amta is, is, is an Arabized word, and an old Arabized word. And it um, means something that's faulty, or something that's broken. That's an... And the, the very... The, uh, um, it was by the time the Quran was revealed it had long been in the Arabic language but the only reason I mention it is because of uh, I, I've seen some you know one of these modern Muslim academics who say oh yeah you know I'm, I'm so confused isn't it you know don't you have a word like amta in the Quran which is uh, anyway Let's just move on. Um, One eleven. وعنت الوجوه للحي القيوم وخاب من حمل ظلمة. It's a beautiful, powerful expression. When the faces we will be humbled before the one and only. And whoever carries an injustice, and keep this in mind because we'll come back to it, whoever carries injustice is most unfortunate. And whoever has performed, had belief, iman, and good deeds, then they have they they have no they, they should not fear an injustice, or hadma is when you treat someone, you 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 take something away from someone's rights. That Quranic insistence on absolute justice, as the sovereign of divinity. 
Okay. Then at 1.14 فَتَعَالَ اللَّهُ الْمَلِكُ الْحَقِّ وَلَا تَعْجَلْ بِالْقُرْآنِ مِنْ قَبْلِ أَنْ يُقْضَى إِلَيْكَ وَحْيُهُ وَقُلْ رَبِّي زِدْنِي عِلْمًا So 1.14 is he, they translated as Exalted is God the true sovereign Be not haste with the Quran before its revelation is completed for thee but say, my Lord, increase me in my in, in knowledge. Good enough, but وَلَا تَعْجَلْ بِالْقُرْآنِ مِنْ قَبْلِ أَنْ يُقْدَى إِلَيْكَ وَحْيُهُ It is not just a commandment to the Prophet. وَلَا تَعْجَلْ بِالْقُرْآنِ This is not the only place that Allah tells us as, as a matter of approach you cannot have ajala with the Quran, meaning that you can't think that you can deal with the meaning of the Quran hastily or superficially. Al ajala is to in al mana is to deal with something hastily and superficially. A classic of that if you grab verses as we often do, you just rely on a verse here and a verse there, or you try to, you know, you're very proud of yourself because you finish the Quran every Ramadan, but it doesn't penetrate. Or if you are very proud of yourself because you read a juz of the Quran every night, but the issue is not how much of the Quran you cover, and the issue is not taking a verse from the Qur'an here or there. But it's exactly as Allah tells the Prophet ﷺ, reflect and contemplate and study this Qur'an. Because this is a serious discourse. It's the most serious discourse that you will encounter in your life. And it's full meaning is not going to come to you from once or twice or three or four times, but from a serious prolonged reflection and study and engagement. Okay. Now, some of of the, the, the truly remarkable um, reflections upon the narrative of Moses and the Pharaoh and what Allah says about reflecting carefully upon the Quran right after the narrative of the um, Moses and the Pharaoh. One of them is a well-known Sufi, um, one well-known Sufi um, uh, I, I don't know how to call it, uh, uh, it's not really a story, 
but it's been attributed to different Sufi characters. It's probably been repeated by numerous. But uh, whether it's Junaid or Rabba al-Adawiyah or, um, or, or, or even Hafiz, it's attributed to Hafiz at one point, that it says that I have sinned against my Lord is sin that requires 40 years of repentance. And the the student asks the, the, the whoever is the statement is attributed to what sin did you sin that required 40 years of repentance? Why 40 years? Because this is like the sin that the Israelites commit against the Lord and then the Lord have them lost in the desert for 40 years. And the the answer is Something happened and I said I wish it hadn't happened. This starts bringing us closer to the point of surrender that Surah Taha is getting us to. Is it a sin to say, I wish this, I wish that, and I wish that? Why did this happen to me? I wish something else would have happened to me. Yes, it's a sin. And theologically, it's the most serious sin. What Allah gives you is what Allah gives you. Reflect upon your responsibility, what you deserve, but don't second guess Allah. If you second guess Allah, Allah will second guess Allah's relationship to you. Don't blame God if your style of doing things is to constantly second guess God. Then don't say, why isn't God close to me? Because you second guess God all the time. Similarly, one of the often repeated narratives that is attributed to Moses in Islamic sources that Moses is reportedly um, Ask God. Now, it, it, it's, this is, of course, probably a metaphorical narrative. Um, that Moses asked God, Allah, ayyul khalq akramu alayk, who is the closest to you? 
Allah says, الذي لا يزال لسانه رطبا من ذكري that who is my ذكر is constantly on their tongue قال فأي خلقك أعلم قال الذي يلتمس إلى علمه علم غيره so who is among your servants who is most knowledgeable and Allah said that who recognizes that their knowledge is dependent on the knowledge of others that who is not self-sufficient in their knowledge who's, who, who owes a debt to others which of your servants is the most just? Whoever judges for people as they would judge for themselves. Who is the most who is the worst among your servants in terms of their offenses? That who accuses me. That who prays to me and asks me to present them with what was the best. And then they are unhappy with what I've given them. All of this um, as if like distilling the the numerous lessons that Muslims took from the first lengthy encounter that Muslims are told about about Moses and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in Surah Taha. And as we'll see, it's all connected to that basic notion of shaka. That you, you must understand the notion of shaka itself, misery or hardship, in order to know what the Quran wants of you and from you. Okay. Now, note this is especially when I said that this is in, in that interlude between the story of Moses and then the next mega. Notice, for instance, um, 124. How did he translate this? That 
but whosoever turns away from my remembrance, Aisha Dantanka is translated, truly they ha shall have a miserable life. And then on the day of resurrection, they will be resurrected blind. But Donka is not, it, it, it's, um, I'm not even sure how to, Aishatan Donka is not a miserable life in the sense that you're going to be poor or oppressed. But Donka is better translated as a restless life. That if you stray away from the remembrance of your Lord, it's life, it's like you live life, but a dunk is when you are, it's as if you're floating right under the water and everything you see, you're not truly sure of. It's like you are never sure of what's real or what's ultimately true. A remarkable expression. And from the time that we have the end of the story of Moses to the beginning of Adam and Eve, so much was called from that transition passage, including what I just shared with you, that um, you, you, you can't pretend to have a good relationship with Allah if you consistently tell Allah, I trust you, but everything that about the way you live your life says, I don't trust you. In the same way that you can't be a hypocrite, you can't say, I'm loyal, but everything about your life says that in fact you're not loyal, that you're opportunist, that you take from Allah whenever it's convenient to take and turn away whenever it's convenient to turn away. Okay. I don't think so. I think so. the file just wasn't complete. Henry, chicken. Okay. It's okay. We, we have physical, that's why we have physical copies, because electronics, you can't trust them. <laughs> Your magic loses. Why did the material It just cut out. The Surah Tahat cut out. What's that last? 
What number was that last one? We were just on one. Is that 135? We just finished 124. I thought it's 135 verses. The last verse is 135. Yeah, so this is... This is the end of it. Oh! Are you saying technology didn't fail? Ha! Technology didn't fail? Hey! Oh my god, it is 135. Sorry. No, it's not Rami's fault. It's not technology's fault. It's just that you see, my self delusions wants me want me to want me. I secretly want technology to fall to fail. Uh, okay, so let's go. Let's go back. Where, where was I? Um, okay. Okay. So it's, it, I realize that I I've just, also that I've uh, jumped ahead. So maybe that's why I got myself confused. Um, okay, so let's go back to 115, sorry, 116, 116. إن لك ألا تجوع فيها ولا تحرى ولا تعرى وأنك لا تظمأ فيها ولا تضحى فوسوس إليه الشيطان قال يا آدم هل أدلك على شجرة الخلد وملك لا يبلى. So this is from all from one fifteen to um. One twenty three. The transition is made to Adam and after the prostration, Adam and Eve are told by Allah or uh, they're informed that Shaitan is an arch enemy and don't let Shaitan lead you astray from heaven. And in heaven, neither hunger nor nor awareness of your nakedness and we'll come back to this point now there is an interesting point here in in the bible it's eve who is tempted and often you are told that in the Quran it's, bo it's both Adam and Eve. But if you notice in Surah Taha, who the who is who is it that Shaitan goes to? Adam. And Adam, Shaitan tells Adam. 
that shall I tell you about the tree and and in the Quranic narrative it is a tree of mulk of the kingdom um, but also it is sometimes described as a, as a tree of eternity but I'll come back to this point And again, it's Adam that commits the sin. A question that is worth thought. Is it that the Quran is saying that Adam is one who's responsible for the original sin, not Eve? So it's not actually both their faults, but it's Adam's fault. Um, that's so um, that's so unprecedented that I am not saying it as a conclusion. I'm saying it as a question. Uh, Ponder it. Now, before, however, وعسى آدم ربه فغوى ثم اشتباه ربه فتاب عليه وهدى. So Adam is forgiven before Adam is sent to life on earth. This is um, 122. And this is 1.23. So, on earth, your biggest challenge is enmity that you will have towards one another. As the Quran tells us elsewhere, that you are often your own word. Other human beings are a test to one another. But here, towards the end of the surah, we have the word shaka again. وَمَنْ أَعْرَضَ عَنْ ذِكْرِي فَإِنَّ لَهُ Sorry, where, where, did, where was it? Why am I confused? I think I'm just starting. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, 122, yeah. Who follows my guidance will not go astray and will not have shaka. That word again. 
وما أرسلنا عليك القرآن لتشقى A couple of things. So what is it that the significance of the, of the narrative of Adam and Eve and Shaitan at this juncture for Surah Taha in the way that it comes? What is it that the tree promised Adam in Surah Taha that what is described as the tree of knowledge in the Bible or the tree of life it promised to overcome the limitations of humanity that effectively that Adam would become the master of his kingdom that as the master of his kingdom, he will not decay, not deteriorate. So, once again, human beings In the same way that Pharaoh, by rejecting the transcendence, resorts to that, 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 that desperate reach into occult practices, like the Nazis became masters of the occult. And human beings consistently are attracted by rebellion against the limits of their humanity. And what shaitan tempts human beings with is that they can overcome the limits of their own humanity. But when they do so, in other words, when they rebel against, and again, whether this is metaphorical or actual, I'm not even, I don't want to get into that. But the point, the message, is that when they do so, and they let go of the divine, what they're confronted with is their, the, how base their limitations are. In other words, once the spirit, the, the divinity is, is excluded, their nakedness and their hunger. And elsewhere, in fact, they become aware of their nakedness. Elsewhere, the Quran tells us that for the first time, in the Bible, it's fudged. In the Bible, the same idea, but it, it's obvious that whoever transcribed the Bible, they had, they were, they had forgotten what the point was. So they fudged it, or they got it confused. But in the Quran, that point is restored to its original pristineness, that you become aware of your physicality and the limits of your physicality. 
And the more you are aware of the physicality, the more desperate you're longing for transcendence. But, and that's at that point, is when they become aware of their nakedness and they become aware of their hunger and they start, start as elsewhere in the Quran it says that they start covering their nakedness. And again, it, the, the point is to reflect on what nakedness, on hunger stand for. <clears throat> In, on earth, you have everything and its opposite. So, opposite of shaka is sa'ada, opposite of distress or, or hardship is happiness. Opposite of marad is sahha, health is illness. Opposite of jahl is ma'rifah. Opposite of ignorance is knowledge. Opposite of hub, love, is kurh or hate or... On earth, you have everything on its opposite. Because on earth, it is not possible to have goodness without the absence of goodness, which is its opposite. So, often, the, that's why a lot of Muslim theologians say the opposite of love is not actually hate, but it's merely the absence of love. That the absence of love Hate or the or something less than hate is merely gradations, but it is the absence of love. In the same way that the opposite of iman is kufr, is ingratitude. The nature of life on earth is a tadad. In the same way that. What, what Adam and Eve were came to, to confront is that the only way they can have an exception from that logic of creation is to be com completely engulfed in the balloon of divinity. But once they exercise their free choice, once they exercise their free choice, they exercise the logic of, of opposite, of tadads, a thing and its opposite. So let now, let's go back and say, so Surah Taha comes and says, if we would summarize this entire message you're gonna you're going to don't rush through the Quran reflect very carefully you Muhammad and your followers are going through intense hardship and Allah knows because Allah knows all 
And Allah knows that the point of sending you the Quran is not to cause you hardship. Hardship, pain, agony, misery is never its own object is, is its own objective. But the point is for you to understand, to reflect upon the narrative of Moses when they received the charge of the Lord and they confronted the oppressor, Pharaoh. And in confronting the smokes and mirrors of the oppressors. But then after confronting oppressors, they confronted the Pharaoh within their own followers, who even after the miracle became led astray. But you want to understand why this happens to people? Go back to the narrative of creation, of, of Satan and Adam. Once human beings exercise choice, they took hold of the responsibility and accountability for these choices. And these choices meant everything and its opposite. Now, you, Muhammad, and your followers, sitting where you are in Mecca at the time, you have a choice. What are your choices? You could say, look at us, we are persecuted. We are oppressed. We are victims. We suffer. We are victimized every day. If you do that, have you learned anything from the story of Moses? If you say, whatever Allah wills is what is fine with us, even if it is something that we don't like. But our responsibility is to do what Aaron and Moses did and go confront the, the Pharaoh, not to live as victims. but to live as mujahids, effectively what the Qur'an will say, call later. And that is what it means when, when, when the Qur'an tells you at the end that whoever forgets the dhikr will have shaka. So the shaka is to live in front, confronted by the injustices and the ta'ud that you are indeed confronted with in Mecca is to receive this Quran and then to live oppressed and victimized. That's the shaka. 
That is why from after Surah Taha, unlike modern Muslims, people didn't receive, the early Muslims didn't receive Surah Taha and say, oh, well, okay, so Allah just gave us an excuse not to work very hard in furthering the Islamic message. It was exactly the opposite. And that's what's truly remarkable, is that, in other words, to sum it up, if I would put it simply in our modern language, no pity party. There's no room for pity. No room for self-pity, no room for pity towards one another. The pass of your Lord is a pass of self-ownership, self-responsibility, and bravery and confrontation and struggle. And it's not the path of laziness either. There's no room for the lazy in this path. Alhamdulillah, that's Surah Taha.